My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you're able to join us this morning. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and we'll be there in just a second. If you haven't already, go on to uh, OurSundaySchool.com to grab a copy of today's handout. I would encourage you to do so. Several things on today's handout you probably want to take note of, um, and I am hopeful that we can get all the way through today. I believe we can. Uh, but Mark chapter 11 is where we will start today. So just a couple greetings this morning to those of you that have uh, found your way to be here live with us. So thanks, Jessica, for you and Bobby being there this morning in room 211 at the Hickson campus with breakfast, I heard. So uh, it's becoming more and more enticing there. Uh, good morning also to, uh, whoops, it just disappeared. There we go. Good morning also to uh, uh, Jessica's brother, Billy. So congratulations on finding 211. Welcome. Glad you guys are uh, with us this morning. So I see the Arnolds, uh, Barry Cole is speaking in tongues again today, so we'll need a translator. Uh, Nancy Miller from Oak Ridge, hey, good morning. Uh, hey, Margie, and yes, happy birthday to the one and only Dave Barber. Uh, he is 36 today, so uh, happy birthday to Dave. Uh, you look great for 36, man, I tell you, it's, it's really incredible. Um, let's see who else, sorry, it's a day click and David Reed have joined. And uh, Day News is here. Hey, fantastic. Good morning, guys. Glad to have you guys. Uh, I've got Julie and Caleb uh, on the other side of our house, and I'm sitting here in the office this morning in Hickson, Tennessee. So let's get ready to uh, talk about Jesus. So again, if you haven't already got your handout, head over to OurSundaySchool.com. I do want to have uh, just a, a quick uh, announcement this morning before we get too far into the lesson. Please be in the special prayer for Keith and Nina Gilchrist. Um, it seems like uh, we are getting close for Nina to see Jesus. And uh, it is a hard time. It is a tough time. And I am actually quite hopeful that this morning's lesson uh, could be a help and a, a soothing balm in uh, the wound there. So love you guys. We're praying for you every single day here at our house. And, um, and we're going to be able to Continue to lift you guys up, and I would encourage others uh, to do so. So we're in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Uh, we start with asking our question, what is God doing in you through the portion of his word that we've studied so far? So again, this is our, our question that keeps us from being uh, Pharisees and hypocrites, uh, making sure that this is not an academic intellectual study, but a study to know who God is, uh, how he uh, engages with us in uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, and uh, to just to bask in the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I hope you've been able to do those things as we've gone through this study. So we've also got uh, Julie Gregg. Hey, good morning. And uh, Albert Whiting with two thumbs up. Fantastic. Good deal. Now, Julia, it says on your post that I'm looking at that you are a sharer, which I believe is a very helpful way for me to know as the person who's broadcasting that you have shared this particular feed on your Facebook uh, feed. So thank you for that. I appreciate you being consistent with that. Uh, helps others see and get to engage with this type of material. So if that's something you want to do, I would encourage you to do that. 
Uh, you can like the post. You can follow Our Sunday School. You can head over to OurSundaySchool.com. All the resources are over there. And then if you want to share this with your friends, feel free to do so. I think that'd be great. So let's uh, get into Mark chapter 11. Uh, we'll read the entire chapter, and then we'll start looking at verse uh, 27 this morning. And I believe we'll finish up uh, the rest of the chapter. Uh-oh. Word got out, Jessica, that you've made breakfast, and people are flocking there. So the Johnsons uh, and Jen Ayers as well. Fantastic. Good deal. Good morning, guys. <clears throat> so let's read Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing? What, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who, who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
Mark chapter 11. Well, good morning to a couple more folks. So we've got the Gregs from North Carolina. Good morning, guys. Great to have you guys with us this morning. And Cheryl Benefield. Hey, good morning, Cheryl. Say hello to RL for me when you see him. RL is uh, one of my favorite human beings on the entire planet. Uh, he prays for my son on a uh, whatever more than a religious is uh, schedule. And uh, I, I greatly appreciate that every single day. So love you guys. Uh, so Mark chapter 11 Verse 27 is where we're starting today. Uh, so we are on your handout. If you got your handout, it says, Jesus circles back to confound the religious elite one more time. And as, as this group, this religious elite, as I've named them here, uh, becomes more and more popular, more and more engaged in the narrative, more and more, not popular is the wrong word, more and more uh, prevalent, and their role becomes bigger and bigger. We'll spend a little bit of time today talking about who they were, what we know, what we don't really know about them. And, uh, and we'll explore that for just a second. So verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. So this is Jesus' uh, third time <laughs> coming to Jerusalem, right? Is this third or fourth? This third, yep, he said it, he's the third time in Jerusalem. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking, this is present active participle, so he's walking around in the temple. So let's, let's set the scene. So he has just, the day before, turned over the tables of the money changers. So he has put on this display of opposition to those who would influence financially the oppression of the worship of God of the poor. So he has just uh, caused a scene, if you will, and here he is the next day. And I, I am not one for the what do you think it was like questions. I think they lead to a lot of guessing and a lot of speculation that can get fixed in our minds. And we put that on par with the words of the scripture. But I think it is quite safe to assume if you interrupted the economic business of the temple the day before and you come back the next day, you likely have the attention of basically everybody there. Right? So, so it makes sense that this group of leaders would come to Jesus fairly quickly, I would imagine, and engage him because they might be wondering what's he going to do next. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm glad he is one of your favorites too, Cheryl. That's fantastic. <laughs> that, that made me laugh out loud. So we, we come to this group. So he's walking around in the temple. And uh, this could be several different parts of the temple. It could be the court of the Gentiles. It could be the court of the Jews. It could be uh, several different places. All right, so he's walking around the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So we really haven't explored what chief priests and scribes and elders are, who they actually are. And, and if the, the phrase chief priests, if, you, if you're like, where, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, it's... It's really not. like the, the concept of the high priest, the, the term high priest is absolutely present in the Old Testament. This is uh, first office held by Aaron. Um, and this was the person that would go into the tabernacle of the temple in the Holy of Holies and on the Day of Atonement offer uh, a sacrifice to atone for the sin of the people. So the, the holiest man in the holiest place on the holiest day uh, offers the holiest sacrifice is, is, a, is a big deal, the high priest. But as the temple complex grew and more and more uh, religious business was done at the temple, you would need 
more and more staff, if you will. So think about like who actually is doing the day-to-day work of the temple. It's not, it's not the high priest. The high priest had a very specific role. Uh, he also oversaw the, the temple. But the, the, there were orders of priests. Now, what I'm not talking about is I'm not talking about the 24 courses that were set up in the Old Testament to divide up the year by the different families and your family, uh, this particular uh, group of uh, families inside the tribe of Levi would handle these few weeks and these few weeks and these few weeks, those types of things. Uh, I'm not talking about the courses of the, the typical priests. I'm talking about there were, there were hierarchies. So I'm going to read you a couple uh, resources here. The first is uh, the Gospel According to Mark from uh, James Edwards. This is page uh, 254. And he's talking about the Jewish Sanhedrin, and it'll make sense here in just a second. So the Jewish Sanhedrin consisted of elders, chief priests, and scribes. The elders comprised 70 lay members of the ruling council, both Sadducees and Pharisees, and we've talked about them already. The chief priests included the current high priest of the Sanhedrin and his predecessors, anybody that was still alive, as well as their family members. The chief priests all belonged to the sect of the Sadducees, and in Jesus' day, they include Caiaphas, who ruled from A.D. 18 to 36. Now, this was a really long ruling for this time. His father-in-law, Annas, who ruled from 86 to 15, and Caiaphas' successor, uh, Jonathan, and his brother, Theophilus. And we know this from Josephus and some uh, references in the uh, book of Acts. The scribes were legal experts and advisors to the Sanhedrin. And these three groups, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, comprised the Sanhedrin, which represented the official seat of religious power among the Jews. So traditional, typical commentary on what these groups were. I'll, I'll read you one more. Uh, this is the exegetical new, uh, commentary on the New Testament by Strauss, uh, probably one of my top three uh, as far as really helpful cultural and um, uh, uh, like noun explanations. It, it, I don't know. I don't have a really succinct theological way to describe it. But when you come across a noun in the New Testament, you're like, I don't really know what that is. Strauss is really good about stopping and then engaging with that. So he says this on page 363. Uh, The three groups Jesus mentions constitute the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. The elders were lay leaders from the aristocratic, aristocratic, sorry, leaders of the Jewish uh, patrician families. The ruling priests, typically called the chief priests, were the priestly aristocracy of Jerusalem, made up of the leading members of the high priest's family and other influential priests. So pretty similar concepts here. Um, Let's see. And the experts in the law or the scribes were authoritative experts in the interpretation and application of of the Jewish law. And there were many scribes throughout Israel. Uh, the most influential ones served on the Sanhedrin. So it was a, it was a big deal to be uh, part of this particular group. So the last resource I want to show you uh, is from a website called neverthirsty.org. And I, I'm not a big fan of like Googling something and finding a result on an obscure website. I, I am a fan of finding a quote from somebody that I have benefited from in the past and seeing through a specific lens. So a a quick backstory. So Gordon Fee, Dr. Fee, uh, was a massive influence, whether you knew it or not, in our study through Romans. Um, He he didn't write Romans, but he wrote the book about Romans that is widely considered to be, like he and Dr. France, like the the top tier stuff. Uh, So this is uh, a quote from Dr. Fee. I'll get there in just a second. So this is kind of an introduction here. So the term chief priest never appears in the Old Testament. 
Um, they are unique to the New Testament. Consequently, their function is not described in the Old Testament. The term chief priest was created by the religious leaders and is not interchangeable with high priest. So when you see chief priest in the New Testament, we're not talking about the high priest. The high priest has a very specific term, and all the gospel writers call it out specifically when they want to. This is what Gordon Fee says about the title chief priest. Uh, from the time of E. Schurer, most scholars have considered this term to refer to either the high priest and ex-high priests in particular, or in general to the members of those privileged uh, from which the high priests were taken. Very similar to the two works that I just read to you. However, um, Jeremiah has shown, is a, a modern commentator, uh, has shown persuasively that it more likely refers to a specific group of temple officers that included not only the high priest and captain of the temple, but also the temple overseers and treasurers, listed twice in the Talmud. Uh, and I, I won't go into uh, both of those references. So he documents, this uh, Jeremiah uh, documents the high priest had a higher rank than the chief priests who had the day-to-day -day responsibility for the temple. And the chief priests in Christ's time included the following in order of rank. So the captain of the temple. And this would have been the person that assisted the high priest and was usually the successor to the high priest. They would also have been the director of the weekly course. They, this would have been the person who scheduled the ordinary priests for the 24 courses. So think about it as the guy at your job. If, you, if you've ever had an hourly shift work, this is the guy that is uh, in charge of scheduling the staff to show up and when they're going to show up. And whatever company you ever worked at, that person actually had a lot of authority, right? It was a pretty significant role. Um, there was a director of the daily course. They scheduled the ordinary priests for the 156 daily courses. So these are the, the daily activities that were happening in the, in the temple. And then the temple overseer would provide uh, supervision of the temple. So kind of like management support and structure. And then the temple treasurer handled the finances of the temple. And then uh, what we see is that these, along with the elders and the scribes, would have made up the Sanhedrin. Now, you're like, Jim, why did you read all of that to me? Because Jesus has been poking at this group of people for a long time now. And he's about to poke them in the eye on their turf. Or what they thought was their turf. It's actually his turf, but you know, we'll get to that later. So Jesus has been engaging with the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests as they would engage with him out and about, all throughout Israel. But now Jesus is in the temple, walking around, and he's just disrupted things the day before. And they've come up to him, this same group, who's going to be responsible later in the same week for convicting him and crucifying him. This is important we understand who they are. And the thing that I want to draw out today is that Jesus ramps up this activity with engagement and poking at them exactly when he wants to, not when they wanted to. See, they've been nipping at his heels for years, but he hasn't engaged like this in their home turf, if you will, until here. So this is a significant shift in the where and the how Jesus is engaging. And I didn't want to just skip past who these people were that were responding to Jesus. So they came to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking around in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders 
come to him. And here's what they say. They say to him, by what authority? <laughs> oh, me, are you doing these things? Now, there's several different things that we could talk about here. There are uh, the, the first five references where this word authority, exousia, shows up in Mark's gospel, all talk about how Jesus' authority was different than anybody else's. When you heard him teach, your instinct was to go, whoa, what's that about? This is not like what I've heard, right? Because the scribes had borrowed authority. They had authority from a different source that they tried to invoke at times, but Jesus had his own authority. It wasn't given to him. It's his authority, right? So by what authority are you doing these things? Now, there's one little thing that I didn't highlight on the handout that I want to, I should have. I was reviewing this last night and making some final notes, and I, I didn't notice this indicative before. But at the, in the middle of page 373, the verb for you doing, poeo, uh, is an indicative, which means from their perspective, this was a statement of fact. Because they couldn't argue with what he was actually doing. They could only argue where did the power come from. His, his staunchest objectors, his biggest enemies, the people who would literally put him on trial a few days later could not argue with what he had actually done. So, Jessica, my auditor, if you're looking for evidence that Jesus did what he said he did, the fact that his enemies used the indicative is beautiful evidence. I love it. So, verb morphology matters. All right, so here we go. So by what authority are you doing these things? Or, or who gave you this authority? Now, if you look at the word gave, this is didomai. Uh, it's to do or to make uh, or to give uh, someone something. This is an active tense. Their assumption is that somebody actively gave Jesus the authority to do this. And it's just, this is as good as, the, as uh, Peter's theology was with his verbs last week. This is as bad as theology gets right here. So who gave you this demonstrative pronoun, this authority? In order that, it's actually skipped in the uh, ESV, in order that uh, uh, to do them, these things. Jesus says to them, I will ask you, notice his, he's dropping his future indicatives again here. He's like mini prophet. I will ask you one question. Answer me. Now, <clears throat> remember, where are they? They're in the temple. They're walking around in the temple. They're in one of the courts. This would have been public for the religious people of the day to be able to see. And Jesus gives them an imperative. <laughs> he says, answer me. And this answer is a plural, right? So it's, he, he's telling them, y'all feel free to get together. Have some group think, have some teamwork, you know, put your heads together. Think about this. It's fine. But answer me as a group, answer me. And I will tell you another future indicative. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So it gives them a challenge, right? This, this to me, harkens back to all these challenges in the Old Testament. 
there's some scenario and a question. It's just great storytelling. And Jesus is, he's going to put them on the spot, right? He's, he's, they've come up to him and asked him a question. And what does he do? He does what he almost always does. He asks them a question back. <laughs> I love it. He is just not going to get trapped. He is going to point people in the direction that he wants to point them. So verse 30 was, so imperfect tense, this is action continually repeating in the past. So was the baptism of John, so this is John the Baptist, who his story is dealt with earlier in the Gospel of Mark, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So really, really simple. Was what John was doing from God or from man? Which one? Really, really simple question. Now, there are tremendous implications to this because the text later on says that the people thought John was a prophet. And if you remember back to your Old Testament, to be a prophet, you didn't have to, you know, you, you couldn't bat what the major leaguers bat to get into the Hall of Fame and be a prophet. You can't bat 300, 350, 400 and be a prophet. You have to bat 1,000. You have to hit, you have to get on base every single time. Everything you prophesy about has to come to pass or they will kill you. Right? So if John's baptism is from heaven, this would have been a sign that he was a prophet from God and that what he did and what he said was from God. So remember, what did John say? Let's jump back to Mark chapter 1. We'll show you what John says. In Mark chapter 1, we talked about Isaiah and verse 5, verse 6. Now John was clothed with, clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He's a weird dude. Verse 7, and he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other Gospels, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John's message was that Jesus was the Messiah. And if Jesus can get his chief opposition to say on their home turf that John was a prophet, then they're acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah. It's all wrapped up in one. You don't get to piecemeal and... Uh, and strip apart all of this stuff. That's exactly right, Chris. He's being a rabbi to these religious leaders uh, of Jerusalem. Better late than that. Would you sleep in or something, man? Come on, I tell you. Now, happy birthday, Dave. We love you. Thank you so much for who you are. Uh, we praise God for you every day. Uh, and I thank you for how you have loved me and our family in just a billion ways that the rest of you guys will never know about in uh, I am grateful. And I'm going to start crying if I keep talking about Dave. So back to John. So was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He is, he is pointing them very specifically. You've got to make a decision here. All right. So then he says, answer me. Another poke imperative. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so he's giving them two imperatives on their home turf. So here's what he says. Answer me. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> this is the plural imperfect, right? So there's this conversation going on amongst them. Saying, in this present active participle, so this took a second. This is a habit 
of saying. So, I mean, this wasn't an immediate like huddle up, hut, 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 break. No, 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 no. This, was, this would have taken a couple of seconds, maybe a couple of minutes even. Saying, if we say, so the subjunctives is option number one. Uh, subjunctives uh, sometimes show lists of options in the New Testament. <laughs> Uh, if we say from heaven, so option number one from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Right? And I, I don't know if you've ever gone into a meeting where a decision was going to be made and you thought through, okay, I'm going to present some information. I'm going to ask a question. What will be the question back and how should I respond to that? You, you're, you're playing a couple moves ahead and trying to role play how things are going to work. Well, that's what the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are doing here. They're role-playing this out. How's Jesus going to respond? What do we do then? Because for them, it was all about status. It was about all of these titles that I just went through a minute ago. It was about all this publicity. It was about all of their pomp and circumstance and public, everybody acknowledging who they were. So, Option number one, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But shall we say, subjunctive number two is option number two, from man? Like what, what in the world? What in the world? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, shall we say from man, weird dude is original Greek. I didn't understand that one, Albert. I missed it. Weird dude. I'm looking. Oh, I probably said that. Okay, gotcha. All right, so, but shall we say from man? And, and here's the kicker, right? Mark comes in with, here's what you need to know. They were afraid, plural, imperfect, indicative statement of fact. They were afraid of the people, of the crowd, because there were people around. So why would there people be around? Because what Jesus just did yesterday. Do you see? how this was not an accident. He did not rush into the temple and kick things over. He went in the night before and looked around. He came back the next day and made specific targeted actions. He came back the next day and dealt with the religious corruption in as about a public way as you can deal with on their home turf. For they all held, they were scared of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And prophets don't lie. So what are you going to do with that? What do you do when you're not sure what to do? <laughs> well, I'll give them credit. They didn't pick, right? So verse 33, so they answered Jesus. Now, this is kind of funny here. They answered Jesus saying, the ESV leaves out the word saying, but the word saying is lego. Uh, we saying, we do not know. And this is a plural perfect indicative. And perfect means completed action with the results continuing. What they're saying here by using this perfect tense is that we didn't know back then and we still don't know right now. And this is heartbreaking because it's either a straight up lie that they just refuse to accept or they were so consumed with the external that they didn't recognize their Messiah. The ones who should have been on high alert on Messiah watch every single day. 
Is there anybody in existence right now who is fulfilling these things from the Old Testament? They should have been seeking out everybody. And when he comes, they say, we do not know. It's terrifying shame. So what does Jesus do? And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. So he comes and he looks around. He knocks over the tables and disrupts the economics. And then he comes back and directly embarrasses the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in the temple. What kind of response do you think this is going to get? They cranked it up to 11 at that, at that point. And at this point, Jesus is ready for that. And please understand, he is in this text demonstrating his authority over all things. He is demonstrating his flawless timing, his ability to push and to pull and to move and to engage and to draw back and to poke at exactly the right time. Because, application number one, Jesus is not in a hurry. One of the incredibly frustrating things about reading through the New Testament is how often Jesus just doesn't appear to be in a hurry. And it's because he's not in a hurry. There's a reason he doesn't look like he's in a hurry. It's because he's not in a hurry, right? <laughs> this is the way our God engages. He is patient. He is long-suffering. And he is waiting for his exact timing to be right. So what do we do with that? We trust him and we wait on his perfect timing because Jesus is not in a hurry. And Nina, I know you want to see Jesus and I want you to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus too. But Jesus is not in a hurry and he is holding you flawlessly. And you're going to get to see him. He is not in a hurry. Application number two. Uh, Jesus did not answer every question. He did not answer every question. Uh, Chris points out really well here this rabbinical teaching method. Answer a question with a question related to demonstrate understanding. Absolutely. That's what he's doing. He didn't answer every question. Did he know the answer to all the questions? Absolutely. He knew the questions before they were going to happen. Right? He knew how many hairs of... Uh, how many hairs were on every head of the people asking the questions? <laughs> it's, come on, of course he knows. So Jesus didn't answer every question. So, so what do we do with that? Well, I, will, I would encourage us to personalize number two, direct seekers to who Jesus is with our answers. Don't get caught up in the how many angels can dance on the head of a pen questions. Point them back to Jesus. Point them back to who he is and what he has done and how he has sacrificed himself for them and for us. We serve a beautiful risen Savior. Point people, engage people back to him. That's what Jesus is actually doing. 
In all of these instances, when you study how Jesus engages people who just come across, he's taking them and either confronting them with their sin to see their need for him or directly showing them their need for him. But either way, he's getting to their need for him. And what does Jesus do with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders? He shows them that John, his authority, came from heaven, which meant Jesus is the Messiah, which means they should have known who they were talking to. So I will leave us this morning with Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26 is a master class on how to deal with fools. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. And I'm going to read this. I said John was a weird dude. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate that. Yes, he was a weird dude. Uh, But Proverbs 26, uh, 4 and 5. Here's verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his eyes. There's a time to answer fools. It's time to not answer fools. We're supposed to be wise enough to know which is which, or we might be the fool. So that's our lesson for today. Our staff has asked me to mention to you all that the National Day of Prayer is May the 6th and that a bus will be leaving from the Chattanooga camp, uh, court, uh, wow, the Chattanooga campus on May the 6th headed to the courthouse. I believe this is where the, uh, the day of prayer uh, activities will occur. So if you're interested in that, just be aware that that's going to happen. Um, happy birthday once again to Dave Barber. I hope you guys have a blessed day. Uh, if you're not friends with me on Facebook, if you would send me a friend request, I would love to show you something that I posted today about uh, happy uh, about what today is also, other than Dave's birthday, it's Carmen Godfrey Day. So I just want to say uh, thank you, Carmen. I appreciate your direct, clear, um, unambiguous statements in my life uh, that I would argue is one of the reasons God has allowed me to live this long. So uh, thanks for that. We love you. All right, so uh, our homework this week is the same as it is each week. Uh, Pray, hear, think, talk, share, and invite. Uh, All that information is at the bottom of page 377 on your handout. Your schedule, Lord willing, next week we'll start with Mark 12, a new chapter. I'm so excited. Uh, So we'll do our prep for Mark 12. And then the following week is Mother's Day. So guys, you got two weeks heads up here. And Amy Velosen has graciously agreed to teach for us again. I'm thrilled about this, pumped about that. So she's going to kick off, uh, Lord willing, Mark 12 with us. And uh, we'll be back next week looking at Mark 12. So two things I'll leave you with uh, our time of prayer. So if you have any prayer requests, please engage, write those in the, in the uh, comments. We would love to pray for you. Uh, Please pray specifically this morning for the Gilcrest family, uh, for Nina and her husband, Keith, um, and grace and peace for them. Um, And then as you get opportunity, go to a campus, a Facebook page, YouTube, or website later today for worship to worship this one who knows who he is, who knew where he was, who knew exactly how to engage with even his enemies and poked at the right time and showed his wisdom that was in alignment with the Father's perfect timing. 
Let's go worship Jesus. I love you guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.